Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I would be lying if I said I wake up every morning ready to be a mom, a wife, a friend. Sometimes my anxiety gets the worst of me and I want to do absolutely nothing. On Mothering Anxiety, a podcast by Maria Lopez, I talk about the real, the raw, and the very honest of what it's like to deal with everyday anxiety. I don't hold anything back. I use my own life experiences to be able to have others relate to me and to relate to their own experiences. My main goal is to make sure that everyone feels that they're not alone because I've been there. I've had those thoughts, I've had those worries, I've had those anxieties. If this sounds anything like you, take a listen to Mothering Anxiety, available on iTunes, Spotify, and any other major places you get your podcast from. A lot of what's been happening for me lately is just finding more clarity and wisdom, hopefully, and humor in it all. Just, you know, we're all kind of dressed up in these funny roles on stage. I'm my father's son. He's my father. Maybe he was my son in a previous life, you know? So maybe we had some stuff we had to work out. Maybe I've been really tough on him. Who knows? But I think the overarching theme that I tried to parlay with the golden age as well as in my own life is forgiveness and compassion, you know, for myself first, because in learning how to parent and take care of that little wounded child within myself, but also the wounded child within my own father, you know, he was, he was, he was in pain and I was just a reflection or a recipient of that, which he didn't have the skill set to absolve for himself. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
Hey beautiful souls, everything that our father is and everything that he brings to our childhood has a massive impact on our lives. He can have such a huge physical and emotional presence in the life of our tiny selves. And if he is not in a good place himself, the effects on his kids can be monumental. We can be so desperate to feel the love from our dad, to have his understanding and his patience and his wisdom. And often what we want from him is simply impossible for him to give because he is battling his own demons, because nobody ever showed him how to feel or sit with his emotions, because everything that happens when raising little kids is hugely triggering. And so instead of forming a bond, we can often end up becoming strangers. I'm chatting with Justin Connor on the podcast this week. Justin grew up in a home that was often volatile and out of control. Justin remembers many happy times with his family, but ultimately his father was an alcoholic and out of control and his parents ended up in a long and difficult custody battle. Justin's struggles with the effects of his childhood run deep and have culminated in The Golden Age, a movie and rockumentary he's created which follows the healing journey that took him to the desert and on to India to find answers, self-love and healing. Justin has so much wisdom to share from all of his experiences. Please join me in hearing Justin's story. Hey Justin, thank you so much for chatting with me today. You have shared your life story in a movie called The Golden Age, which follows your story and healing through music. What drove you to create a movie about your life? Wow. First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was here in uh, Los Angeles for a lot of years pursuing acting. I wanted to work on my own film and uh, kind of tell my own story and, uh, you know, do something of more substance. I feel like some of the issues from growing up in an abusive household, uh, I was trying to confront in a way through therapy and such. And uh, I thought maybe this could be a good vehicle to... Uh, you know, explore and expose some of my story in hopes that it could heal others that have been through the same. Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've watched the movie and I'm just wondering, you know, there's all the photos there of you as a small child and alluding to this relationship that you had with your father. When you think back to your earliest memories, what are the feelings associated with being a small child? Yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> my father was, um, an alcoholic and he was kind of abusive and and it was it was challenging growing up and you know I think what was the most confusing being a child is you know you go into the survival mode when there's a lot of chaos but there's also an element of you know I had really wonderful memories as a kid and I can immediately go back to them like in a moment's notice and really feel the magic of, of all that it was, but yet within the same day or within the same blink of an eye and those who have grown up with the kind of an alcoholic might be able to understand this, but you know, it, it can almost like flip and switch so quickly that it's like a blur, you know? So I, I had this wonderful child. We had this nice beach house out on the coast that we go to in the summers, but it's hard to discern those memories without being clouded by the ones that were so painfully punishing so you know as I got to learn more about my father and I actually reconnected with him after the film before he passed away and we were able to you know break bread and I forgave him and I'm working on a book right now that goes even deeper than the film just because I felt like I needed to cleanse a more personal story than sometimes a film can allow and and you know I was able to forgive him and we had some nice moments together but I realized that his father had been really tough on him as well so it was hard to blame my father in some level because he kind of dutifully followed my own father as an attorney and I don't think that was what he ever wanted to do and raising three kids must have been hard and he had this affliction from his own past as well as his own drinking problems so you know it was tough you know I was like you know it's funny these these traumas that we have it's I wish you know on some level we want to wave a magic wand and make them disappear but I, I tell everyone I would go through it all a hundred times out of a hundred 
just because of who it's made me become as a result of it, even amidst how painful it was, if that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think it's given you then, that experience? I, I think just a, a strength of character, you know, really marching to the beat of my own drum. It was like taking on this film project, which was very personal, certainly real. Um, you know, there's been an element of really trusting myself. And I think when we go through these wounds and these traumas, it's steeped in such shame that it's hard to navigate trusting oneself, you know, because that seems like something it was robbed of at a very young age. But I think it's allowed me to kind of embolden myself by stepping into my own shoes understanding that I may be living a creative and devotional path that's unlike others. And I wouldn't have been able to entrust that if I hadn't gone through such tumultuous upheaval. Yeah, absolutely. So the relationship with your father and you, you're saying that you can now see the generational element to that. When did you become aware of that? Because obviously we're never aware of that as little kids and we don't understand it. And there is that understanding as we get older, isn't there, that that our parents had a lot of stuff to deal with too. So when did you become aware of that? I think as I got older, I mean, I think that eventually within someone in, in a biological family tree, someone eventually cuts the cord for generations previous, as well as those moving forward in terms of letting go of these like karmic wounds that we've been carrying around or been carried from one generation to the next. And I, I think it was my duty and my dharma or my fate to sort of snip those ties and take a long concrete look at even the concept of family or material life in general that we're all kind of impermanently wafting around in this funny ball in space. But to see the deeper understanding and truths within this mirage that you know this was my family in this lifetime and I was meant to engender a lot of insights and teachings because of those painful lessons but you know to kind of see it with a little bit of humor and levity even in and and even in surviving some of these traumas as a child that I parlayed in the film you know, humor is a great asset just because, you know, it's so crazy that you have to laugh at some of it to keep your wits about you. And I think that's one of like those defense mechanisms we have, not as only as adults, but certainly as children to offset the pains, you know? So I think, you know, a lot of what's been happening for me lately is just finding more clarity and wisdom, hopefully, and humor in it all. Just, you know, we're all kind of dressed up in these funny roles on stage. I'm my father's son. He's my father. Maybe he was my son in a previous life, you know? So maybe we had some stuff we had to work out. Maybe I'd been really tough on him. Who knows? But I think the overarching theme that I tried to parlay with the golden age as well as in my own life is forgiveness and compassion, you know, for myself first, because in learning how to parent and take care of that little wounded child within myself, but also the wounded child within my own father, you know? He was, he, yeah. was, he was in pain and I was just a reflection or a recipient of that, which he didn't have the skill set to absolve for himself. Yeah, absolutely. And so what about your mum when you were growing up? What was your relationship like with her? Well, it's funny because in the film, it was kind of like, you know, she was portrayed kind of telling the story. And, you know, we always gravitate to our mothers so concretely, especially as young boys. And in the book, I'm kind of, parlaying a little of another side that the film wasn't able to show but I you know I had a little bit of a complicated relationship with her in the sense that my father and my mom were going back and forth through court and all these divorce trials and tribulations joint custody abusive shenanigans galore and it was like we were almost as kids we felt like we were kind of pawns in this weird game that then got parlayed out in court so I think some of the elements of telling my story in this film are there were so many stories or portrayals of what did or didn't happen through court or back and forth with, between my mother and my father that I wanted to tell my own story. But like, you know, like my father and like all of our parents, they have their own parental wounds as children themselves. And my mom certainly wasn't exempt from that. So in this book that I'm writing, it's, um, it, it goes in a little bit deeper. So those who like the film, that'll be coming out later this summer, but it goes into a deeper kind of exploration because it's never just one person per se and it's easy to target my father as the obvious instigator and abusive monster of sorts and, it, and at many times he was but my mom you know had her own complicated background as well in terms of 
saying she was protecting us, but was she to the extent that she was? And and I don't blame her by any means, because like my father, she has her own skill set, her own wounds and karma she was dealing with. But, you know, it, it's interesting when I stepped back from it and looked and saw that if we don't absolve these issues that we have from our own past, it's, it's almost implausible, if not impossible, to carry them out to our own children who are like sponges. So, you know, there's been a lot of forgiveness that I've had to undergo just for myself, but especially for both of them. And, and I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't uh, a challenge, you know, because they both left their bodies. And, um, and just as a quick funny caveat, they, they were arguing throughout their whole lives and got divorced and it lasted for like a decade or two, but in some strange twist of fate, just to underline the mysterious chasm of karma or family and whatever it is meant to imbibe my mom passed away just as I went into post-production on this film. She passed away on my dad's birthday and my dad passed away just as I was releasing the film on my mom's birthday. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. So it made me look at it all with a different lens. Like, oh. Wow. The fact that they died. Yeah, that's crazy. I know. That's I've crazy. never heard of I've never heard of <laughs> I know, but I yeah. but it was very, fairly indicative and apropos giving their their communion and you know in the book I say in the opening chapter if there ever a, a a song to aptly represent my 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 parents illustrious plight it would be a thin line between love and hate <laughs> because they even even amidst their ongoing wars there was there's always deep love behind those wounds you know yeah how long were they actually married for. They were married for, I think, about mm, 10 or 15 years. Mm. And it was great. We had a great childhood for a long period of time. And even when things got crazy, we still had some great experiences. But it was this joint visitation where I had to see my dad twice a month that would just turned into these horror shows that in the film, I could only broach in a very small detail. And I got deeper with it with the book because I don't really, I couldn't even like, I couldn't even begin to, fathom all the stories it was just so it was so chaotic and as as children of survivors of these scenarios uh, and for those that they're listening who have been through the same it's like we go into this survival mode and we don't begin to realize the repercussions until later in life and I think that's what I have been confronted with by making the film and even stranger now that I've released it it's out there, I didn't anticipate for the barrage of me actually processing it in a visceral human-like way outside of the creative director or writer of this project itself. It's really, or has hit me far deeper as of late for some reason. Now that the process is coming to an end, like, you know, there's always this kind of postpartum depression when you work on a big project like this, because it feels like you birthed you know, this big thing. And yeah. it was definitely a birthing of sorts with the film and the album and now the book. And uh, I did, I knew that there was going to be a, a, a mood swing or, or a sea change of sorts, but I didn't anticipate it would happen until I released the book, which I haven't done yet, but it's, it's already starting to percolate. Like, who am I now outside of this project that I've worked over a decade on? It feels like I've worked on it for 10 lifetimes in terms of cutting the cords of this generational familial past. So I'm trying to give myself more time and space to just breathe and be okay that I'm enough, you know, and just like walk myself through being pleased with that, what I took on, even if it's very difficult to navigate now that the ashes have sort of, you know, settled or starting to blow away a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that completely. When you look back at that time, when your parents were in the court battles i think that i saw something that said that your dad was actually cross-examining you on the stand as children yeah it's... that must have been before they changed the law or something i'm sure that that's not even like a thing is it <laughs> i don't even know because he was representing himself and he was like yeah cross i believe the line is he was cross-examining us like we were convicted criminals and um, and the and the lawyer who was observing it all in the film said to call it strange would have been the understatement of the century, but we were actually being cross examined at one point during my father's cousin who was representing him, and it was all just so strange. And I remember looking at my brother who was going through this at the time with me. And what happens, I think, when there's such chaos between 
parents during these kind of situations or in general, when you go through these traumas or wounds, the children sort of become the parents. It was like, we were looking at each other like, this is crazy. Like, why is everyone acting mad? And we're the only ones that are like, this is bullshit. And we're like young children. So it was like, there's an element where I think in dysfunctional families, the children's who survive these end up becoming a little more quick on the uptake and, you know, maybe perfectionists or I've struggled with that or um, are, are really good at adulting themselves in some capacity, although in others lacking because they've had to be doing it since they were from a young age and maybe weren't even cognizant of it until others pointed it out or, or realizing mm -hmm. in, in others that they didn't have the same skill set. But it was like one of the things I said in the book is, you know, you know, what survivors of this sort of thing want is just a non-judgmental ear. And by exposing myself so completely in this film, there was always that intrepidation that, oh, people are going to feel this need to take care of me. When ironically, I've been taking care of myself since I was the age of seven. Like that's the last thing I need, even though we all need to be taken care of. I mean, I don't mean it in that capacity, but it's, it's, it's a funny um, conundrum because I was, I've been parenting myself for a long while and, have, and watching my parents in court, watching my own dad cross-examine me, hearing him telling me some of the things that would make your jaw drop. It was like, I had to be the parent because I realized my own parents were out of control. Yeah, wow, out of control. And just like zero self-awareness of any kind that this has become completely out of control. It's just bizarre, isn't it? That parents... but sometimes the, Yeah, sometimes the dialogue they have with themselves, I think is that I did everything for you kids or I always did what was best for you. And they have to say that because I think underneath that, the underlying truth of that, if they have to confront what's going on in the same way that we had to as children or had that wherewithal, they wouldn't, they would break down in a harrowing wash yeah. of tears because it's almost like they were going through their own survival instinct amidst their own chaos as we were as the recipients of them unknowingly doing it or not having the wherewithal to address it or come to terms with it for themselves, let alone us, you know? Yeah, and I'm sure your mum would have been really fighting to keep you away from the toxicity of your dad and his alcohol and all of that as well. I mean, I'm sure that that was her reasoning, wouldn't it have been, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think she tried on some level, but going to courts and then, you know, having joint visitation, there's an element of, there's only so much she could do. My dad was a powerful attorney. He fought in court, fought with tactics that were a little suspect, but at a certain point, it's like, okay, we had to see him twice a month. She tried to do her best to protect us from it. But there were these promises that we we're going to move away and get away from him and move to another state. And those never came to fruition. So it always felt like my childhood was like in a holding pattern, like constantly waiting, you know, like, when is this going to happen? So, you know, that's been one of the key elements of it. And also realizing like as an adult, there were certain archetypes from my past that were very relative to either my brothers or my parents specifically that I ended up attracting through friends, lovers, et cetera. And I think as children who have survived this sort of thing, it's good to keep an eye on these archetypes that mirror those at which um, we're most familiar with, but maybe aren't as healthy for us to be around or communing with as deeply as we had to as children when we didn't have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're dealing with your parents at a young age, was it a lot of just suppressing everything that you were feeling with a parent who's quite abusive? Do you, do you end up burying a lot of your feelings? I'm just thinking of you out there in the in the film, you know, you're out there chanting and it's like almost like wanting to express a lot of things that maybe you weren't able to. Yeah, I think so. I think that, like I think the word the word that comes up a lot, and that you know, I'm going to see a therapist for a lot of years. I think the word that comes up all around a lot of this survival of abuse is shame. You know, yeah. it's like this whole idea of what could I have done differently, or why me, or you know, did I do something wrong, or am I not enough? You know, like self worth. You know, so I think. Those are the themes that came up a lot and still come up from time to time. And I think my mom tried to do her best to evade us from some of it, but it was such a time of chaos that it was impossible to not 
have the aftermath of that shame show up in my adult life. And I see it, how it's shown up in my brother's lives in different ways. I mean, we all have it. Everyone who survived this stuff has it. And we cope with that element of shame in a certain way as adults forever, I think. I just think we learn to have a different relationship with it. So it's not as overwhelming, but I've had to learn how to like shake hands with some of these feelings because um, I don't think they ever really go away until you process them and realize that the hold you ha they have on you isn't as strong as you were once convinced they did because of processing it, you know? There's a lot mm -hmm. of people I know that have been through the same, but they haven't gone as deeply into the wound as I have and and probably have said to me numerous times, like, do you think you're going too far with this? I'm like, no, you can never go far enough with this because if you don't examine it fully and completely, it will show up and manifest and attract the same people in your lives and you'll still mimic those same behaviors. At least now, by going so deeply into that wound, it's like I'm able to see that which I've adopted from them. And even though I struggled with separating myself from that, or at least taking the parts that are good and leaving behind the bad, it's challenging. It's something that isn't just you learn it once and that's it. I think it's a constant check-in to say, oh, this might be part of that thing. Maybe it's time to readdress this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so your mother won most of the custody and your, your father had just a couple of visits yeah, a yeah, month we, or something we, like that. Exactly. Exactly. Some of this. Yeah. I mean, in a film, you only have a hundred minutes, so I couldn't really get into too much of it. So it's kind of like this, like macro economic wide lensed version. And the book goes far deeper into some of the, uh, the joint visitations, but it was, it was just so crazy. And when I first did my first cut of the film and showed more of it, and I showed it to like some strangers as well as friends in the screening room. And some of the people came up to me after like, dude, this is way too dark. <laughs> like, obviously <laughs> this didn't happen. Obviously this didn't happen to you. And I was like, and I was kind of like silently like curdling inside being like, oh, this is like the Cliff Notes version. Cause you know, you share these stories with someone and I have with people in the past, but I'm always careful to because the stories are so crazy that they either have this like strange sympathy for you and want to take care of you or like you poor thing. Or it's like, did this really happen? Like what? Like how, how did you survive this? So even the shame and addressing it for myself and or to others is like too much. You know, I think my dad was just, he was just in pain. I think people who are drinking and develop alcoholism, I mean, maybe part of it, of course, is genetic, but it was this like um, this incapability or desire to neglect confronting, I think some of his own stuff. And I, and, and I, but I do want to say this about my parents and I want to give them a pass as well as to all parents out there, because I think having three children is, is no easy feat in working six, 10, excuse me, probably like 10 to 12 hour days and then coming home and three loud rambunctious children. It's like, I have to give them a pass too, you know? It's like, I don't know. You know, I mean, it didn't, I'm not saying that to justify anyone's behavior, good, better, and indifferent, but I, material life and having a family and going uh, into that world, I think is, has its own challenges. And I think you compound that with things that he hasn't resolved. And it was like, I, I think I just had to be the recipient of um, his lack of wanting to address that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you then grow up, did you leave home and, and did you have a relationship with your parents in your 20s? Um, I did with my mom, but not with my dad. And um, after I finished the film, I wrote my dad a letter saying I wanted to reconnect. And um, and we did, we met and it was great. And with my mom, I, I was much more in contact with her, but, and I didn't get much to, into in the film, although I do in the book, you know, I had a complicated relationship with her. She was, um, she had a lot of trouble moving on from that upheaval of the divorce. And um, she finally moved out to California years and years after she said she would. And after being out here for like three to five years, uh, I think the guilt and shame from maybe what she did or didn't do really got to her and she ended up developing cancer and passing away. And it's sad, you know, because what I realized in regards to my mom and my father, it's like, you can't like save people. You can only really save yourself. You can try to like offer whatever it is you hope that you think might serve them in the best capacity and light for them because you care about them and love them, but you can't force someone 
to address or confront or absolve their own stuff. And I think there was an element of, I had to take a few steps back from my mom in the years before she passed because it was just hard to connect with her in the way that I otherwise wished I could have. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And then you went on to have a healing journey, which I feel like started with finding a yoga practice. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of the start of... Yeah, yeah. I, I like in the film I discuss uh, being exposed to like chanting and yoga, but more like uh, teachings from the East, Krishna consciousness. Um, this guru Srila Prabhupada who started the movement in the United States. Um, I ended up meeting a girl who lived at the temple and expo- explored that a little bit in the film and started reading his books and was really drawn to it. You know, I've never been a big religious person or a fanatic by any means, and was kind of a little leery of organized religion having been raised catholic as a child and going to catholic school but i really responded to it and um, it was one of those things that started to seep deeper into my core and and those teachings led me to india and led me to studying and practicing and trying to live the life of a devotee more acutely and uh, it's been very healing and i think part of the reason of wanting to create the golden age is giving those who have survived trauma a different way out i mean therapy of course is great some people do breathwork or yoga or running or writing or they turn into artists to try to mend some of their own dysfunctional past or whatever it is and I think I've gone through all of it and I embrace and love all of it but I think the devotional path of trying to understand your your role or your purpose as a servant to a conduit of something much higher and more loving and expansive than yourself as in the conception of God or Krishna or source energy whatever people want to subscribe to I think there's a humility that bestows upon one's path by taking that spiritual journey in terms of realizing that sometimes, you know, according to the teachings of the East, these uh, wounds that we have in these relationships with our parents and our family and those that seek to destroy us on some level or, you know, perceive to is that those are our greatest assets with a little bit of, you know, a wider lens during the aftermath is I was being served by that madness as a child instead of harangued and strangled by it. So, and that's why I said earlier, I think, you know, I I wouldn't trade or change my path or my past in any way, shape or form, despite its harrowing, pounding years and years laden um, experience, just because I realized that there was something that I needed to work out with my family tree in order to see a larger lens of what you know, it means to be a soul or a jiva walking through this earth and trying to gain some type of knowledge or communion back with God or whatever we conceive it to be. So I wanted to give people through this film like a different way out because usually it's like you go to therapy, you do these things and those are all great. I love them all and I've done them all. And, but I think I think the devotional path is, is, uh, is something that gets overlooked for trauma survivors. And I think that's really the bread and butter of, of how I'm still standing, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. So you went out into the desert for 30 days and fasted. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? What made you decide to do that? <laughs> What's wrong with you, boy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in the film, I was kind of jokingly saying, you know, I needed to get away from the, 
you know, my character in the film has gone through fame and this traumas with his family. And the manager says, well, he wanted to go out and fast for 40 days and 40 nights, but he didn't want to freak out the Jesus people since he made all those religious comments. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go out to the desert and do this. And it was nice because I think there's an element that when you've been so harangued by this stuff from the past, you got to do something totally unique or, you know, you're going to need to starve yourself of it on some level. So I, I, I wrote into the film, this part where he goes out to the desert to just get away from it all. And I wished I, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, but I didn't do it for a whole 30 days. I wish I could have, but I had to come back and do work stuff, but, but I did it for about 12 to 14 days, no food, just water. And, and it was very interesting. Like some of the memories that comes up or, or just the emotional um, bursts that would come out. And it was a nice way to, I think sometimes going out to the desert or someplace that's really detached from modern life is a great way to kind of reset and rebalance. So I, while the film crew was sleeping in the house that I rented, I was like literally sleeping every night in this tent with like wind blowing and I was like all alone. And it was, it was, uh, it was kind of confronting, but it was good. It was like enlivening. I felt like I was bottoming out and I needed to reconfigure and restructure my life moving forward. And it was in, in, on some level that desert scene was really built, not just for the character in the film, but also for myself, because this stuff had been going on for so long. And then I go off to college and then there's still elements of the whole divorce here and there. And it's like, it was the first time where I really allowed myself to just take a break, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what's coming up for me too. As I released the film now, it's like, you know, you're confronted with yourself again. So I think sometimes it's good to do something extreme to sort of clear the cobwebs and, 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 and use it as an opportunity to recalibrate and, um, and start over. Yeah, I think it must be weird to turn back up to your normal life after you've been doing that for two weeks. Like it, it, is. It, would just, it, is. it would be really strange, I think, because it just everything is just so fast and full on and busy and loud. And, you know, if you just take that time just to do nothing and immerse yourself in singing and chanting and, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love that idea. Maybe you should start tours, <laughs> you know, like if people are looking for the other way to yeah. heal. <laughs> yeah, like do the, more, uh... yeah, more communal like retreats. It's something I, I want to do more. And it's actually that was like the impetus of me realizing how much Mother Nature is probably the closest thing to the devotional teachings that are so close to my heart is, you know, I, I'd see myself leaving Los Angeles in the next few years just out of sanity you know it's like as much as this rat race is great about trying to achieve and express and have a career and money name and fame it's all fine and dandy but I kind of am so mystically impressed and swooned by mother nature and I want to do more of just sort of being a part of that you know creative energy of of, of nature of, of, of mother nature I'm, I'm so like camping in California or like just growing vegetables or flowers and like just kind of, I don't know I, I see myself doing a lot more like painting or autonomous art and kind of moving with mother nature a little bit more because especially after this whole quarantine thing it's really got me thinking about like what is this whole material rat race that we're so entranced with and I don't really understand it and I think this film was sort of looking at that idea of becoming someone and for those with like a a more keen eye. I think the golden age is really a satire on fame or material life or these wounds and traumas or even religion. It's like, it's really like a satire of material life and, and, and trying to reveal by the end of it, like what's really important, you know, to have yeah. forgiveness and humility for this larger, grander, mystical, sometimes very chaotic and painful experience we call life. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like so many people would be on the same page as you. I think we're all just doing it because we all have to do it. You know, we're all just living in this world that we've all created. But I feel like there'd be so many people that would love to just get out into the desert. I <laughs> and, know. You know, I just, I could, yeah. We should walk yeah. the desert more and do nothing. <laughs> I, just, I agree. Just, and just discuss different generations and just, uh, I think eventually that's going to happen more fruitfully. But we're so entrenched in this material rat race and I, I realized that when I'm most happy it's going to these really obscure places in California that are just so beautiful or somewhere on the west coast where I'm like why am I not doing more of this in my life like because yeah. it, it brings your heartbeat and your pulse down to this really interesting level and so many creative ideas then come to me as a creative person and 
and I feel so much more humility and gratitude. And I feel like I'm just kind of moving with the wind. And, and I think we're all kind of longing for that more. And I, I hope that if anything from this quarantine is like, we're all recalibrating or readjusting what it is to be successful. And I think if I were to take anything from all the madness that I had to go through, I think I'm now learning to really trust that I may not live the life that everyone else is living. And I, if no one else understands it, but me to really trust that path, you know, to really trust that nature and marching to the beat of my own creative drum or whatever songs I choose to sing or the next film I need to make, even if Hollywood isn't into it or, you know, whatever it is, it's like trusting that what I have to say is more than anyone's opinion of it, you know, that it's really rooted and deeply like enmeshed with something that's much deeper and more expansive than anything I can achieve in the material world. Oh yeah. I love that. So your love of Krishna, because that came up a lot, is that from your time in India or was it from before then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the books from the girl that I met at the Hare Krishna temple, she turned me on to it. And the film is kind of a funny moment. I'm just like, oh my God, I go to the temple and all these people around chanting, singing Hare Krishna. I'm like, get me out of here. Like, this isn't my jam. But the teachings and the books really hit me hard. And that was the first place I started shooting the film in uh, Vrindavan, India, which is uh, Radha and, where Radha and Krishna's pastimes take place. And it was so beautiful. And, you know, it's funny when you start unearthing the devotional path at which you're meant to achieve or unfold or express or delve into in this lifetime it's funny how all the different parameters and things fall into place i met this sweet young boy who took me around in india and i've come very close with he and his family since i ended up meeting a really sweet artist who's under the auspices of Srila Prabhupada, who turned me on to my own guru dev and took initiation there years later so it was like this gradual process that just kept happening and I tried (laughs) trust me I tried to move away from it because I'm like oh god am I every religious community has got its own quirks or something but I knew that this was part of my path but I tried to trick myself into thinking it wasn't and I even wrote the golden age probably most specifically even more than all the karmic wounds of my family I I wrote the film that by the end of it he's on his way uh with India and you know these teachings at the forefront of his soul because I knew that's where I was headed and if I didn't write it as a script and trap myself into it I'm afraid that I may have wiggled out of it because as we all know we can be very tricky with that which is best for us even if it's sometimes confronting so so I really wrote the script like to make sure I didn't wiggle out of something that I knew was as much a part of my path as anything in this lifetime so it's really helped infuse the futures, you know, the next album and the projects I'm doing next. And it's created a lot of solace and a lot of healing around. You know, I think there was a certain desperation I might've had as an actor for my early years in LA, where it was like, I wanted to show them how talented I was. I wanted that attention. I wanted that affirmation. And I think a lot of actors come from these dysfunctional households because they want that validation of sorts. And I think doing this project made me realize or absolve some of that desperation and really see that I'm a creative force in my own right, but it wasn't dependent on these wounds anymore. And so I think that's where the, the devotional path, I think, has served me the best. Yeah. And you talk about the Bhagavad Gita and having read it. What, what are the messages or the main things that you've got out of that? Yeah, it's a conversation between uh, Arjuna and the battlefield of Krishna. And, and um, you know, he's speaking to Krishna about how can I kill my fellow countrymen and and it's this dissertation and this conversation between Krishna and Arjuna and it's it's very sweet about seeing past life and death and you know don't be attached to the fruits of your labor and there's this um you know every I don't even look at that book sometimes as like a spiritual book of sorts it's almost like a treatise about about life beyond the material perspective so I think a lot of it really hit home for me in terms of widening my view in terms of understanding what it means to be a soul moving through this world and how the teachings through that conversation um, and the instructions from Krishna were constantly preparing Arjun in the battlefield as if material life is the chariot that he's riding and how we can kind of gain control of it by absolving our need to control and surrendering by serving by serving. I think that's the main thing that I always get from that text as well as all the teachings is that we have this inculcation in the West of 
wanting to enjoy our lives. And I think if we're really honest about this mad view of life is there's really no enjoyment in material life. Our only enjoyment comes through serving. And, and that can be as subtle as anything. That can be serving a meal for someone or serving someone with a song I write or serving Krishna in the way I try to chant deeper each morning and the night. But it, it's, it's that, that whole concept of understanding that in this period that we're living in, there's no real enjoyment. And I think that's the conundrum that we're always trying to figure out what book or what thing or what career or what you know, relationship or these things, these impermanent things that they can bring us some happiness, but there's never any happiness. Whatever starts out as sugar or as sweet, it always ends up as poison in the end. So it's about trying to become less of a consumer and more of a, a servitor, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what do you think you got out of your trip to India? Was well, it everything that you expected it to be? Because I know people go to India with expectation of it being this magical and amazing place but I, th I think there's this whole other side to India it's oh, so yeah. much poverty and what was it for you well I think that we all go with this expectation it's going to be mystical and I think that mysticism or wonderment comes by being slayed by the reality of being in this chaotic place that's rife with disaster and homelessness etc so I mean I think it's it's a perfect backdrop to really explore the teachings even more fruitfully because so much of the culture is revolved around the religious principles, yet at the same time, it's chaos every day. I don't think going to India, when I go to India, I'm not like, oh, I can't wait to go to this mystical experience. Like, no, it's like, buckle up, get ready, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> get armed to the teeth because it's going to be, it's going to be wild. But, you know, what I always take from it, and, you know, the first trip that I went, it was more about just like being a fish out of water, but wanting to be respectful to it about the different areas I was visiting since I was just sort of an infant of sorts, not knowing what I was getting into at the time. And it was really beautiful and humbling, but it was also madness within the same breath every day. And in the years since that I've returned, you know, that never goes away per se, but I think if there's anything to take from going to the East Indian specifically is that, that barrage of being uh, <laughs> your senses blasted and being um, thrown into chaotic scenarios every which way you turn is a great metaphor for being less attached to the ups and downs of material life. So I think India is just really a heightened version of everything that we've just come from or everything in our lives we hope to escape. It like almost is like a, a quickening or a speeding up of the process of, of that which needs to be addressed because you can't avoid not addressing it being in such a, um, a topsy-turvy, high-paced <laughs> um, area. So that's what I always take from it. Now, the more devotional and spiritual areas, like Vrindavan and different places that people go to, Varanasi, etc., it's like there's more of a mysticism there, but there's more like predators trying to, you know, prey on... <laughs> you know, tourists like me or something. So it's always like got its own barrage of ups and downs. But, you know, I, I try to go to those places and just sit as reverently as possible and soak in as much as I can and not realizing the potencies of just being there and trying to go with a soft heart hopefully does more uh, good than, than less. Yeah. And so I suppose this whole journey has been in the end about finding self-love, hasn't it? Where do you think you're at with that now? Where, where are you at on the scale? Oh, geez. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could. If I'm be, okay, I'll give you the truthful answer and I'll tell you wish I were. I mean, I wish I were better off at it, to be honest with you. The more truthful answer is that self-love, something that I, I may have adopted from my mother, which was really strong. She had an inability to do that. And I think this project was really good for me to address, you know, some of my chaotic past, but I'm still working on that. I think that's a constant work in process. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people who survive this stuff still carry a little bit of that shame and certainly a lot of uh, creators or creative people that they're, you know, never feel like what they're doing is enough or they have this perfectionist tendency or they beat themselves up and, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have that. But at the same time, I also realized that that streak is also what makes particular artists' creations great. You know, that perfectionist, that um, wanting to make sure it's so right and presented well to someone. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. But, you know, self-love in the day-to-day -day arena is something I'm getting much better at 
but still have a long way to go if I'm being completely honest with you. It's about really checking in with myself. And I have this habit of taking two steps forward in a really beautiful light and then just demolishing into three or four steps backward, which I think is pretty apropos for a lot of us out there, especially those that have survived trauma. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's a daily process. I think it's, it's like becoming sober, you know, it's yeah. like one day at a time, one breath at a time. Where am I at right now? Being okay with whatever is versus wanting to blame or shame oneself for that, which could be better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I totally resonate with all of that. I think it's, you kind of go, I'm, I've got it. I'm like, really, I'm doing it. And then it's like, boom, you know, uh, yeah. it's just yeah, like an endless journey, isn't it? Yeah, the universe is just like, oh, you got it, dude. Okay, cool. Bam. <laughs> I know. Watch out, kid. But I think that's okay. You know, I think it's good to like constantly get slapped because Sometimes when we're, it, I find that when we start taking the concrete steps to really do that self-love in our honor world, the universe comes in with a big old slap. And that's wonderful because it really tests the metal of like how you've done thus far until then. And, and I think that's what I'm working on the most is not that I'm not practicing self-love is that can I do it on a continual level without when that big universal slap comes to not get swayed, to still stay on it and say, that's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You just mentioned sober. I just thought of your dad and I wonder, did he ever get sober in his life? No, <laughs> sadly, no. Um, you know, the Irish Catholic gene, they like to drink. So he was still boozing away when he was getting older. And, you know, I think, I don't know, it's hard to say. It's like alcoholism is a really interesting vice because there's such the denial of that even being an issue for those that are in it. And those that are sage enough to realize they have an issue and can admit they have a problem and are an alcoholic, that's beautiful. But that takes like a certain amount of strength. And then you have to deal with the conundrum of not doing it again and living one day at a time and one breath at a time and really checking yourself comparable to what we just discussed. But I think with my dad, it was like his denial was so steep so deeply that he couldn't stop doing it unless he did some full reformative change in his life, some therapeutic like men's group thing that made him address some of his own wounds. I don't think that was ever going to happen. So I was cool to accept that that's what he, where he was at. I actually preferred he was like that because I knew that the idea of him doing something in a therapeutic fashion was slim to none. So it was okay. You know, I think that's just part of how he was raised and he'd been doing it for like 60 years so I mean it would be kind of remiss of us to reconnect and him and be like you know I think I'm going to become sober now it's like he probably would have died on the spot you know it was probably better for where he was at to just like continue chugging that train but I think in our last days together and when I remember departing from him and I talked to him about this in the book is uh you know, he really broke down and apologized. And, you know, he was, I think there was this element of being scared going into the next realm of where he was headed. And I think he wanted to die. I, you know, I think he was ready to go. And I think he didn't know how to express himself throughout his life. But by me forgiving him of things that were fairly unforgivable, I think that allowed him to get really soft with himself and get soft with me and very vulnerable and emotional with me in a way I don't know if he ever had before he left his body. So I think that was better than any idea of him trying to become sober, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. More, real, more realistic at least. Yeah, absolutely. But it's amazing that you were able to have that moment and he actually apologized for what had happened. And that's pretty huge, I think. Yeah. I do you know, too. a lot of people never get that. So I know it's true. It's but that's a part of, of what you've created there, though. You've obviously gone in with an open heart and allowed that to happen. And I think you've received back an apology. Yeah. And even when we were talking earlier that the kids end up becoming the parents, it was like, while well, the last time that I ever saw him, while he was like crying saying, I don't want you to leave. And, and uh, I'm so sorry for all this. It was like, I had to step in again as the parent and be like, look, this stuff, you know, it was like the teachings just came right through me. It was like, dad, this was some karma you and I had to work out. It's okay. I love you. I'll see you again in another realm sometime. There's nothing to feel bad about. It was like, he was really, he broke down emotionally. It was like, that was wrong of me. And I'm like, no, it's the stuff we needed to work through. And it's okay. And, you know, I had to absolve him of it, but it was like, I had to not only be like the parent while he was going through that, because I knew it was so hard for him to 
absolve himself or to allow himself to be vulnerable like that until like I gave him permission to by forgiving him or, or like gave him the pliability to do that. But it was like, not only did I have to act almost as a parent in that moment, but I had to act even more so as like a devotee. Like how, how much have these teachings really captured and infiltrated my heart if I wasn't able to with my own father before he's about to pass say, this is just something we had to work out together. There's nothing to feel bad about. I'll see you again in another realm when I'm supposed to. And, and this is exactly the way it was supposed to be. And I think that was really important for me to like, cause that somehow just being able to do that healed that little child in me and healed the little child in him because his skill set, he wasn't able to play that role. So I was like, well, I'll play that role, you know? Yeah. I love that. Oh, so emotional. I, I just think it's beautiful. And <laughs> it's just a shame yeah, was, we can't it's just a shame we can't do those things like a lot earlier <laughs> you know like why do we have to be on our deathbeds but anyway <laughs> i know i know that's the irony of real life but that's the mystery of karma too it's like why do we wait until we're about to leave our bodies to tell each other how much we love each other or why did we not do it throughout our whole lives but mm -hmm. rarely if we look at our lives or other people's lives our relationship with our parents or friends or lovers how often is it a walk in the park you know it's always mm. a tit show it's like oh why couldn't we have done this beginning and it's really how allowed me to like step back and recalibrate in terms of like the next relationship i get into because we often bring a lot of our junk that we haven't resolved to it and it gets muddied and then we try to like backtrack to like make it back to that innocent point where we met and fell in love or something you know it's like there's an element of wanting to approach it with a different hue on the yeah. next round in the same way that you're you're bringing up it's it's funny how we we don't tell each other how much we love each other until it's too late <laughs> yeah absolutely so justin you've created this beautiful tribute to a difficult life in your movie the golden age tell us everything that we need to know about where we can find it and the music because i know music is really important in your life and how we can connect with you as well yeah for sure um for those of you that want to watch the golden age you can watch it on amazon prime it's streaming there uh, the soundtrack album called Justin Connors, The Golden Age. You can listen on Spotify or any streaming platform. And for those who aren't sure if you want to check out the film, go give the album a test run and see how it relates. But I, I'm really proud of the album. And there'll be a book coming later this summer that goes even deeper if, if the, both of those hit you. And if you want to stay tuned on that, go to my website, justinconnor.com, C-O-N-N-O-R.com and uh, sign up and I'll keep you posted on the book and there'll be an audio book and a print to order on Amazon as well as deluxe copies from the website. So that's where I'm at right now. And um, I'm really excited. The film has really been healing people and the album people are really vibing. And I feel like my role in this lifetime is kind of like that wounded healer to try to heal people through my own story. And as hard as it was to explore and reveal my own story, I think the way it's been hitting others who have gone through trauma themselves is, is I think better than anything I could say or promote, you know? So I only want people to see it because if you've gone through some of the madness as I had, I really genuinely humbly think it will heal you because it's very tricky in these moments to be like, hey, look at what I did or look at this film. And I probably made it wanting to be like, hey, look at all my talents. And by the time I finished, it was like, wow, this was like a conduit to something much bigger than my story, even though it's all about my story. It's really all of our stories of surviving that shame and abuse. So I have no vested interest or dog in this race other than to just heal as many people, including myself. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you've shared your story in this way because I feel like the shame that so many people hold around their stories and doesn't allow them to share. And that's that's a thing we need to do so much more. And that's why I do this podcast is sharing stories it's what we mm. should be doing because we shouldn't all be holding shame we shouldn't be never speaking about how we feel it's so important that we bring all these things out in order to just make the world a better place because i think once we reduce childhood trauma we will make the world a better place that's just seems like such a simple thing really justin i've really loved chatting to you today you're very deep and i love everything that you have done and everything you had to say i've really enjoyed connecting with you so thank you so much thanks for having me this has been so sweet Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. 
your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.